The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. What do you do when a piece of your body's hardware goes haywire? If you have type 1 diabetes, that damaged hardware is your pancreas. There's no way to fix a broken pancreas, but you can build a new one. Welcome to Prognosis. I'm your host, Michelle Faye Cortez. For the next eight weeks, we'll be exploring science and technology and medical research. We'll look at how the treatments of tomorrow get into the hands of patients who need them the most. Along the way, we'll meet people living on the edge of innovation. There's the scientist genetically engineering frogs in his garage. Drug company researchers using newly unlocked secrets of the body to cure deadly diseases. And we'll hear about one man's quest in the desert to turn a psychedelic drug into a treatment for depression. We begin our journey with a do-it-yourself device that replaces one of the body's most critical organs. million Americans have type 1 diabetes. That's the most severe kind. It develops when cells in the pancreas that make insulin stop working. Why it happens is still a mystery. Insulin is the hormone that converts food into energy. A healthy pancreas is a marvel, pumping out precise amounts of insulin at just the right time. There are dozens of things that affect how much is made. Eating, drinking, exercising, sleeping, you name it. It's a problem if you don't make any. Sugar builds up in the blood. It gums up your organs like the kidneys and the heart and can cause an early death. Diabetics can inject replacement insulin, but they have to figure out how much to give and when. Answering those two seemingly simple questions is what makes life with diabetes miserable. You have to take on the duties of a healthy pancreas all day, all night, 365 days of the year. There are tools to help. Glucose monitors track blood sugar levels so people can calculate how much insulin they need. And there are pumps to deliver the insulin, but you have to tell it what to do. Americans spend more than $8 billion a year on these devices, but no one's been able to get them connected and working together to deliver the right amount of insulin the way a real pancreas does. Until now. This is a story about strangers coming together from all over the world, driven by a desperate need. They banded together on social media to take matters into their own hands. Now, just to be clear, these folks didn't build a mechanical version of the pancreas. What they're actually doing is linking their insulin pumps to their glucose monitors and getting them to work together without any human involvement. None of this is FDA approved. Still, thousands of people have tried it out on themselves and on their diabetic kids. And they love it. More are signing up every day. Here's Bloomberg's Naomi Kresge with the story. Building your own pancreas can be pretty intimidating. 
There is software code to install and Bluetooth and radio signals to sync among the four electronic devices that you'll need to link together. But there will be lots of people to help. Someone you're likely to come across early on is a mom from outside Toronto named Kate Farnsworth. Some people call her St. Kate because she spends so much time helping people build their own diabetes technology. Kate lives in a quiet suburb about an hour northwest of Toronto. She realized that something was up with her daughter Sydney more than six years ago. Sydney had started drinking a lot of water and eating a lot more than usual. I used to say she was eating like a teenage boy, but she was an eight-year-old girl. We used to have to pack an extra snack after school and uh, liters of extra water, and she'd cry when she ran out of water. But even with all that extra eating, Sydney was losing weight. Kate googled her symptoms, and diabetes popped up. So I took her to the family doctor, and the family doctor said, "Well, that's an easy test. We can just poke her finger and see what's going on. Don't worry about it." And the nurse poked her finger, and she turned to the other nurse and she said, "It's not working. It's not. It doesn't say a number. It just says hi." And the nurse said. That's because her blood sugar is too high for the meter to read, and that was our introduction to diabetes. Sydney is now 15 years old. She still remembers how tough things were when she first got the diagnosis. I was terrified because that's like I was eight. I didn't want anything like this happening, and it was just it was life changing. Yeah. People with type one diabetes need to take replacement insulin, but messing up the dosage can have catastrophic results, including going into a coma or even dying. And figuring out how much to take is really complicated. There are a ton of things that affect blood sugar, so sleep can affect blood sugar, anxiety, adrenaline, food, stress,、um, exercise. But just basically everything affects blood sugar. Roller coasters make her blood sugar drop. Walking to school makes her blood sugar drop. I've heard people say that boys walking by make their daughter's blood sugar go up as well. I have not noticed that myself, but I'm not paying that close attention. So Kate and her husband Dave were getting up several times a night to check Sydney's blood sugar. This is something that I heard a lot from parents of kids with diabetes. When your kids are asleep, it's hard for them to know when blood sugar levels are dropping too low. There are these little devices called continuous glucose monitors, or CGMs for short, that sound an alarm when the readings are dipping too low. But they can be really hard to hear, and until recently, you couldn't tune into them from even a few rooms away. They're also expensive. At first, Sydney didn't even have one. So Dave would check Sydney's blood sugar at midnight before he went to bed. Kate would set her alarm for 3 a.m. and when she'd set another alarm for 6 a.m., they were so tired all the time. Kate thought there had to be a better way. One day I was googling,、um, researching whatever you want to call it,、uh, all things diabetes, and I came across a blog, and it had a little girl. Who had a backpack with a cell phone connected to this receiver Sydney wears, and it was broadcasting their blood sugars to their parents. 
And I thought, that's that's what I need. I need to be able to see her blood sugar when she's not with me. Kay found a group of parents who had managed to pull data from CGNs onto their smartphones and watches. This group is called Night Scout, and it came up with the first big DIY advance. It helped parents track how their kids were doing at school, at night, or any other times when they weren't together. Up until that time, you had to be within 15 feet of the continuous glucose monitor receiver that you received from uh, Dexcom or Medtronic. This allowed you to be anywhere in the world and still see your blood glucose values. That's Weston Nordgren, a dad from Bakersfield, California. He helped start Night Scout in April 2014. The group operates on the principle of pay it forward. Every single family that set up the DIY system was supposed to help someone else figure it out too. So they started with five families. And what happened after that defied everyone's expectations. Within six weeks of creating that group, there were 1,700 families. By September of 2014, there were 7,000 families. By December, there were 10,000 families. So it just exploded. So now parents could watch their kids' blood glucose. That was a big deal. But some people were already thinking of taking it further. The next advance would have been impossible, if not for a blunder by Medtronic. The world's biggest medical device maker left a security gap in some of its insulin pumps. The wireless radio frequency link was open to hackers. Ben West, a programmer and diabetes patient in California, found the open back door and walked right through. I actually don't describe it as a back door. Um, it's more like the front door wasn't put on. Um, it wasn't locked or it wasn't closed? It, no, like there's just no door. There's just, there's just no door. <laughs> what door? <laughs> ben explained to me that there are two ways to protect against a hack. You can make a strong defense or you can just hide it. Try to keep the soft and vulnerable spot a secret so it's safe. And that's the choice that Medtronic made when they designed this device. We're just going to leave it so that it's easy for us to test and get out the door and ship very quickly. We'll keep how it works a secret. And so we're claiming that no one will know how it works. And since no one knows how it works, no one will ever attack it. That, that's basically the tactic they took. Now, it turns out that, you know, I came along and I said, well, it's on my body and I actually need to know how it works in order to make sure that it's not doing the wrong thing to my body. Ben started the project in winter of 2009. He was already working at that point as a software engineer. And then he got a job at a cloud computing startup. He didn't have a whole lot of free time. So he would take his Medtronic pump home with him to his family over Christmas and New Year's. And we would spend the, you know, almost the entire holiday just working on this thing. You know, we would take poster paper and, and start trying to figure out individual bits and bytes and the meaning of individual codes. And we would try to dissect, you know, what are these timestamps and how are they encoding times and dates? And we would kind of um, pick these different topical areas and really intensely attack it over the holiday period. And those were usually very, very productive sessions. What, what we would do is kind of form necklaces um, out of these things. So that, you know, the, the glucose meter plugs into a USB cable, 
And then the USB cable goes into a, a computer like a gumsticks or a Raspberry Pi. And then that goes back into another USB cable that goes into another thing. So pretty soon you've got this thing that kind of twists itself around and loops around. And um, we would kind of wear those around uh, so, that, so that we could continue working while, while moving around the house, I suppose. So after about five years of work, Ben managed to reverse engineer the pump's communications code. That means he figured out how to tell the device what to do. Now the DIYers had two pieces of the puzzle they would need to make an artificial pancreas. They had Night Scout, which was pulling the blood glucose data off glucose monitors. For Sydney and Kate, that meant either of them could watch Sydney's blood sugar from a smartwatch while Sydney was in school, or if she was asleep. Now Ben had hacked the pump. The final piece of the puzzle would be an algorithm. That's a script that shows a computer how to do a repetitive but complicated task, like calculating insulin doses. Enter Dana Lewis. She lives in Seattle and she has diabetes. So if I sat down to have lunch, I would be looking at a plate of food and I would have to do math to figure out how many grams of carbohydrate are in the food. I'd also have to look at what my current blood glucose is. And if I had a CGM, I'd be looking at the past couple hours, trying to visually predict in my head, what is the trend of my blood sugar? What's going to happen? I also had to look at my pump and get the information about how much insulin I already had active in my body. And so I had to combine the current glucose kind of what has happened in the past, this insulin amount, predict what I was going to happen, add in the calculation of how much food and how that was going to impact my body, and decide how much insulin do I need. And not only how much insulin do I need, but how should I time it? Dana and her partner Scott Lybrand decided that it would be a lot simpler to let the computer do some of that calculating. So they wrote an algorithm. At first, it would only spit out recommendations. Then they took their project to a conference, and they met Ben. It was June of 2014. And we stood beside him kind of demonstrating what we've been working on, and he was demonstrating the fact that he could read and write to this Medtronic pump. And it actually wasn't until a few weeks or months later that another light bulb went off, and we went, hey, we've got this algorithm that takes data and predicts into the future what should happen. If we combined it with his code to talk between the devices, Instead of telling the human what to do, we could actually write directly to the insulin pump and tell it to give more or less insulin. So then they had to figure out how to close the loop. They didn't start out knowing exactly what they would build, but they just started working on the problem step by step, trading the ideas back and forth. So I live in Seattle. Scott, who was then my boyfriend, lived 20 miles away in Everett, Washington, and Ben was based out of San Francisco. And so we would collaborate in a variety of ways. We would use a chat channel called Gitter, which is connected to GitHub, where we would get on and start talking. We used Twitter. Um, we also just used phone calls, where we would get on speakerphone and be programming and using the chat channel and also talking by phone. There was also times where Scott would need to go down to San Francisco for work, so he and Ben would meet up. Sometimes I would be in San Francisco. We'd meet up in person, you know, on nights and weekends um, and really just kind of plucking away at, oh, we found a problem. Let's resolve it. Okay, we found the next problem and the next obstacle. Let's figure out how to tackle it. In December, the group finally felt like they had surmounted all of the obstacles. Dana finally felt confident enough to become the first human tester for her new artificial pancreas. Originally, my plan was just to test it for a couple hours, but I was like, you know what? 
I really, I want to go to sleep and I want to go to sleep with this thing working. And so we set up all of our backup alarms and I went off and went to sleep with the system and I woke up the next morning and I felt better than I ever had before because I woke up with my blood sugar in perfect range where I wanted to be. I hadn't been low overnight. My blood sugar hadn't been high overnight. I wasn't interrupted in my sleep. I didn't have to drink a juice box. I didn't have to press a button on my pump. I got 10 uninterrupted hours of sleep and it was glorious. The DIY community was all about open source or sharing code. So Scott, Dana, and Ben wanted to share what they'd learned so that others could also feel and sleep better. But it wasn't just up to them. There's also the FDA or the Food and Drug Administration, which regulates devices in the U.S. They were worried that the FDA would come down on them for sharing something they'd cooked up at home. In the end, after talking to the FDA, weighing the pros and cons, they decided to post their work online with one important caveat. The people who wanted to use it would have to build it themselves. First, only a few tried it out. Then more and more. Kay was watching too. She was intrigued, but also intimidated. It seemed very complicated to build. But then another member of the community designed a more user-friendly version for the iPhone called Loop. In 2016, Kate saw it in action. A friend's little boy was running around having his blood sugar automatically adjusted by the system. She started looking for the parts she needed that same day. Medtronic had closed Ben's open door on its newer pumps, so Kate had to get a hold of an older model. Someone gave her one. Then she ordered a tiny Bluetooth-equipped computer, which enabled the pieces of the loop system, so the insulin pump, the glucose monitor, the iPhone app with the algorithm, to talk to each other. Another DIYer, a dad from Minnesota named Pete Schwamm, had designed the device for his daughter and named it after her, calling it the Riley Link. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Kate got to work. There weren't a lot of instructions to follow, but just enough. I built the app on her phone, and then I set up um, the spare pump and the Riley link and uh, the iPhone and let it run, but not connected to Sydney. I just filled the insulin pump with water and let it drip out as if it were giving Sydney insulin. She watched on and off for hours as the pump pushed out tiny squirts of water into a napkin or a cup. Of course, it wasn't affecting her blood sugar at that time because it wasn't hooked up to her, but I could see the logic behind what it was trying to do. Kate hooked Sydney up to the system on a Friday afternoon so she could keep a close eye on how it was working. It started keeping Sydney's blood sugar in range without Kate having to do much of anything. All of a sudden, you know, life changed. When you're not spending all of your time worrying about diabetes, you have all this extra time in your life. 
Sydney stopped worrying too. I'm a teenager. I have my phone with me 24-7. All I have to do is open an app, put in my carbs, get my insulin, and keep going. It's just so much easier than having to go a whole nother level of just pulling out my pump, doing all that, clipping it back on, going back to what I was doing. Does anybody even really have to know if you're adjusting your carbs now? I mean, would anybody even realize what you're doing? No, sometimes I'm sitting at lunch and I'm just giving insulin on my phone and my friends just think I'm on my phone looking at something. Just like totally normal. Yeah. Just to be clear, this is a DIY hack. No pump on the commercial market lets you dose insulin from your iPhone. Yet. Medtronic, the world's biggest maker of insulin pumps, is watching closely. They're working on an artificial pancreas, too. They have one device on the market now, but it's not as advanced. It doesn't adjust insulin for mealtimes, like Dana's system does, and it doesn't allow dosing from an iPhone like Sydney's does. What it does do is make the tiny little adjustments that happen in between meals. That's already enough to be a big advance. The device, which sells for $7,000, is going like hotcakes. So far, more than 100,000 people have one. But there's another big difference between DIY systems and the equipment Medtronic sells. Before its products go on the market, Medtronic needs to prove to the FDA that they will be safe for every one of the thousands or sometimes millions of people who buy them. I talked to Ali Dianati, who handles R&D in Medtronic's Intensive Insulin Management Unit. We're regulated for a reason to make sure that we control as many of those variables as we can and think about all the potential corner cases so that, you know, any something catastrophic doesn't happen because ultimately these patients and families uh, are dosing insulin and insulin can be a very, very dangerous thing. It's hard to track whether anyone was hurt while using a DIY system. Everyone I met while reporting the story said they had never heard of anybody being seriously injured. But diabetes is a dangerous disease, and the risk does exist. Some of the DIYers are working toward the same FDA seal of approval that Medtronic has. Last month, an open-source group called Tidepool announced that it is building an FDA-regulated version of Loop, which is the system that Sydney is using. The goal is to have an official product that's available on the iPhone App Store and compatible with pumps that you can buy today. If they succeed, what was once a radical approach to diabetes will become, perhaps, mainstream. For now, though, Kate, Sydney, and the other DIYers are making do with their homemade systems, and their ranks are growing. Kate took all that time that she gained from not having to micromanage Sydney's diabetes and invested it in the DIY community. She runs a Facebook group called Looped that has almost 6,000 members, and she spends hours every day helping other people set up systems like Sydney's. Kate enjoys helping others, but she's looking forward to the day when she won't have to because an FDA-approved medical device will be on the market. I would love to be put out of a job one day by a company. I don't want to do this 
long term, I would love everyone to get a system that works for them and uh, right out of the box so that we don't have to keep doing this. Kate took a big risk when she plunged into building an artificial pancreas for her daughter. She didn't have medical or high-tech experience. There was always the possibility that something could go terribly wrong. But the results are really hard to argue with. Sydney is in good health, and she's living her life more or less like any other well-adjusted teenager. And that's been worth everything. I mean, just the fact that I can live my life normally instead of having a hundred different things to focus on, and it lowers the stress a lot. Would you ever go back to the way it was before? Oh, no way. Never. And that's it for this week's prognosis. Thanks for listening. Do you have a story about healthcare in the U.S. or around the world? We want to hear from you. You can email me at mcortez at bloomberg.net or find me on Twitter at Cortez. If you were a fan of this episode, please take a moment to rate and review us. It helps new listeners find the show. This episode was produced by Liz Smith. Our story editor was Rick Shine. Thanks to Drew Armstrong. Francesca Levy is head of Bloomberg Podcasts. We'll see you next week. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.